Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. I'm going to make you host things like that. And so he had his incredible revelation of the end of Matt. And we have our next speaker, Michael Staley, uh, speaking to us from England. It's Michael Staley. And uh, um, he's going to be presenting uh, some uh, talk based around his incredible new book, The Incoming Aeon of Matt, Letters Between Charles Stansfeld Jones and uh, Gerald, Gerald, York. Gerald York. And uh, um, really looking forward to this talk. And uh, we had originally planned to have a conference coinciding with uh, Camp Crowley before all this COVID hit. And here's Michael's new book. Um, and uh, um, we were going to call the, the conference because it's held in Vancouver. Uh, the Fraterakad Symposium of the Occult Arts. Maybe that'll happen sometime. Uh, what, you know, if we get through this COVID stuff, we get through to the other end. And uh, Michael Staley, we're going to pass over uh, hosting capabilities to you. Done. And uh, um, okay. you be able to, yeah. Have you got the hosting capabilities? You should have it. You should yeah. have it. Yeah. Okay, so I'll click share screen. Absolutely. You're in control. Can you make him pull the mute? Yep, that's probably him. There we go. Wunderbar. All right, I'm going to mute, mute, us. mute us. Hi, Richard. Okay, can you see? We can see you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so um, what I'm going to be doing this evening is um, my talk really falls into three parts. Uh, the first part, and I think it's very necessary, is uh, a brief overview of the Akkad Crowley relationship. Um, I think this is necessary because the fact is that there's surprisingly, surprisingly large common ground between Akkad and Crowley um, on the Inn of Mart, surprisingly large. Um, and then after that, I want to go on and consider a couple of other developments. Um, and then I'm planning to draw upon my own experience. Okay, so um, Charles Stansfeld Jones was born in Fulham, London on the 2nd of April, 1888. He came across Crowley's journal, The Equinox in 1909 and joined the AA as a probationer later that year. 
He took the name Akkad, a Hebrew word meaning one. His supervisor in the AA was initially J.F.C. Fuller. And when Fuller broke with Crowley over the so-called Looking Glass trial, Crowley became the direct supervisor of Akkad. And he began to take a keen interest in, in Akkad. This, um, this first slide, uh, it's a photograph that comes from relatively early in Akkad's AA career, around 1913, and it shows his arm replete with cuts from the practice of Libra as it would. <laughs> Libra involved trying not to use um, a common word such as I and cutting oneself with a razor blade every time the word was uttered. The idea was to encourage self-discipline and vigilance. This is another photograph from around about this time uh, showing Akkad, well, as you can see, kneeling at an altar. Uh, I think this is in the Vancouver Agape Temple or, or Lodge, but I can't be sure about that, so I won't state that with definiteness. Akkad was also a member of the OTO, and he made rapid progress through the grades of the OTO, establishing a lodge of the OTO in Vancouver. Um, I believe this photograph is taken from there. In June 1916, Crowley granted Akkad the ninth degree. The letter granting, granting Akkad the ninth degree is dated Moon in Libra, which would make it 10th to the 12th of June. And that's actually the letter. Um, I think it's very interesting to look at the date here um, because we'll come in a moment to the events that made Crowley see Akkad as his magical son. But we're, we're only one or two weeks away from this now. This was a time of intense mystical and magical activity for Akkad as an account that he, that he gave some years subsequent to this makes clear. He says, the culmination came at the summer solstice of 1916 when having done my best to strip myself of all that I had and was in the personal sense, I underwent a great initiation obtaining for one thing Atma Dishana and with it, or following it, a very great spiritual insight into the workings of the order of the AA and into the cosmic plan on the higher planes. This experience, as was afterwards discovered, clearly indicated the fulfillment of a prophecy made in 1904, before I knew anything of the order, and gave me a certain magical link with the outer head of the order which he could not but recognise and has since continued to do so. Now, interestingly enough, that was written in 1924, and obviously uh, the person to whom a magical link was made was Crowley, so um, Akkad, at least, still in 1924, considered that link there. This attainment of Akkad's had a considerable impact on Crowley. For several years, Crowley had been preoccupied with the need for a successor. 
He envisaged a successor as a magical son, and he conducted a series of six magical operations for that purpose. Akkad, who was technically a zealoter in the AA, took the oath of the abyss on the 21st June 1916, swearing to interpret every event as a particular dealing of God with his soul. He was reborn as Fraser O-I-V-V-I-O, Magister Templi. On hearing this news, Crowley decided that Akkad was clearly the magical son born from the sex magical operations which he had undertaken. Furthermore, because of Akkad's magical motto, meaning one, he decided that Akkad was the one spoken of in the Book of the Law, who would come after the beast and who would solve the mysteries of the book that he, the beast, couldn't. Crowley gave an account of this in his magical diary entry for August the 21st, 1916, and I want to read this to you now. An amazing discovery. The operations to have a child by Hilarion on July the 8th, 1916 onwards, seven in all, and one upon Helen Wesley, ended September the 12th and September the 16th with three operations at the beginning and the end of Catamenia. These operations are described as particularly good. On September the 23rd, the word of the equinox was nebulae, i.e. the babe of the universe, as I now see it. This equinox, the word is Sol Omon, the child of David's adultery. Now, OIV, VIO, was born on June the 21st, exactly nine months after the liberal equinox. On conclusion of the equinox ceremony, Hilarion had seduced me, and I had concentrated on the word just obtained. It is really very remarkable that I did no operation for a child after, this, after September the 12th to the 16th. We were at Vancouver in October 1919, I two or three days earlier. It is to be noted, too, that Hilarion was the perfect scarlet woman as described in chapter 3, verse 44 of the Book of the Law. Then, OIVVIO may be the child coming from no expected house, since I always thought of a material baby and never tried for a spiritual son. And yet, the child of my bowels, since OIVVIO has Sagittarius on the ascendant, and Sagittarius is on the cusp of my sixth house, Virgo, the bowels. And also because I did the ninth degree operations for him upon the body of Hilarion. Anyway, as a result of all this, Akkad became effectively Crowley's right-hand man. At the end of March 1918, Akkad sold up everything that he had and moved to New York to take part in many of the subsequent sessions of the Amalantra working, which had started in September that year. The existing record of, of the Amalantra working concludes in June 1918, and shortly afterwards, Crowley went to Aesopus Island for a magical retirement. 
He was visited on occasions by his former mistress and seer of the Amalantra working, Roddy Minor, and on other occasions, Fayaka. Shortly afterwards, in September 1918, Akkad began to have a series of insights into the Book of the Law. He came to see that the Hebrew word Al and its reverse, La, meaning God and not, respectively, were the key to understanding the book. He started recording this and other insights in a document that consisted largely of diary entries, and he later called this Liber 31. He chose this name because the Hebrew word Al enumerates as 31. Archive completed Liber 31 in early November 1918, but decided not to pass it to Crowley for the time being. In March 1919, Crowley published Blue Equinox. This issue included extracts from Occard's magical records as the first part of several projected parts, setting out Occard's attainment as a master of the temple. This part of the Blue Equinox was accompanied by a photograph of Occard showing him in meditation. And that's the one there. In September 1919, Akkad finally sent Crowley his insights into Al as the key to the Book of the Law, and, has, and as he had embodied them in Liber 31. This slide here it shows uh, a page from Liber 31, actually the title page. This is not the original document from 1919, but a copy which Akkad had typed for Gerald York. Crowley was overjoyed to receive this and overjoyed at Arcard's insights and his reaction was sent as a postcard um, to Arcard and Arcard's actually recorded the, uh, the reaction at the bottom of this title page. It is line 418, sorry, line drawn equals 418, thou knowest not. Your key opens palace. Liber 220 has unfolded like a flower. All solved, even 276 and 347. Did you know that pi equals 3.141595593? And oh, lots more. In this, uh, in this brief ecstatic, uh, reaction, um, CCXX220 is, an, is another name for the Book of the Law, um, 276 and 347 are particularly enigmatic verses which Crowley hadn't understood until then and they appear to be a cipher. Well as I say, as I said Crowley was delighted and uh, in recognition of this massive contribution uh, he enhanced the title of the Book of Law to Liber Alvel Legus from Liber Legus to incorporate Akkad's insights. 
now. Unfortunately, this was the high point of the relationship between Achard and Crowley. And shortly afterwards, relations between the two men became strained. In 1920, Achard had been introduced to another order, the Universal Brotherhood, of which Crowley took a particularly dim view regarding it as, as fraudulent. The Universal Brotherhood uh, appears to have been founded um, sometime during the second half of the 19th century. And it was in order with, ooh, should we say Christian, Christian roots, but the sort of Christianity we're talking about is what they refer to as high church, um, bordering on Roman Catholic really. Akkad tried to interest his friends and colleagues in the Universal Brotherhood with varying degrees of success. Nevertheless, he became increasingly absorbed in the work of the Universal Brotherhood throughout the 1920s to Crowley's considerable annoyance uh, because he thought that Crowley thought that Akkad was thereby neglecting his duties. Anyway, Akkad actually prospered in the Universal Brotherhood and sometime in the late 20s, early 1930s, he, he actually became the head. To add further to the tension between Crowley and Akkad, in 1921, the then head of the OTO, Theodore Royce, issued Akkad with a charter appointing him as head of the OTO for North America. This was particularly galling for Crowley because Crowley, Crowley had maintained that the charter that he'd got from Royce back in 1912 and 1913 uh, covered the United States. Um, I was soon challenging him on this point and seeking clarification. This, um, this tension with Crowley notwithstanding, this period of the early, of the early to mid-twenties was actually a very creative one for Arkad. He published um, QBL, or The Bride's Reception, in 1922, The Egyptian Revival in 1923, and The Anatomy of the Body of God in 1925. These are considered his three major works. But he also published many others. In 1923 alone, he published three further titles, 31 Hymns to the Star Goddess, Crystal Vision Through Crystal Gazing, and The Chalice of Ecstasy. He also published at this time a diagram, The Wheel of the Tarot, which is here. Um, it's very, very complex. It basically plots the various cards of the tarot against the, uh, the will of the zodiac, the uh, zodiacal signs. Um, I've been using this myself for about um, a year now in some private work that, from the private ritual work that I do. And it's, uh, it's a very intense piece of work. In addition though to all this, Akkad contributed 
a large number of articles, many of them published in the magazine with which he was associated at this time, the Occult Press Review. This here um, is the cover of one of his issues, and it contains an article by, by Akai. Not so much an article, it was his review of a book by uh, Dr. Raymond Buck called Cosmic Consciousness. It's uh, excellent, absolutely excellent. Um, he also actually devised some songs they called uh, Three Songs of the New Eon. Um, enclosed here are the Ibis, the Benue Bird and the Star Goddess. So he was a bit of a polymath, really. Now, for some years, Akkad had also become extremely interested in references in the Book of the Law, chapter 3, verse 34, which Crowley had interpreted as referring to the Eon to succeed the Eon of Mars, sorry, the Eon of Horus, getting a bit in front of myself here. Anyway, the verse in the Book of the Law reads, But your holy place shall be untouched throughout the centuries, though with fire and with sword it be burnt down and shattered, yet an invisible house there standeth, and shall stand until the fall of the great equinox, when Hurumarchis shall arise and the double-wanted one assume my throne and place. Crowley's old comment to this verse included the following passage. Following him, Horus, will arise the equinox of Mark, the goddess of justice. It may be a hundred or ten thousand years from now, for the computation of time is not here to stay. Crowley's new comment, uh, written in the early, 20, early 1920s at Chitaloo, makes a further makes a further interesting remark on the relationship between the two eons. There is no violent antithesis as that between Osiris and Horus. Strength will prepare the reign of justice. We should begin already, as I deem to regard this justice as the ideal, whose way we should make ready by virtue of our force and fire. The eon to come after Horus was characterized by Akkad as the eon of truth and justice, and also known as the eon of Mart. Crowley was interested in this too, as I think these two, these two comments, the old comment and the new comment, demonstrate. But more than anything else, he was focused on the Ian of Horus, and he expected Akkad to concentrate on assisting him in his work of promulgating the Ian of Horus. Well, there were still yet other sources of tension going into this rather febrile mix. As we've seen, Akkad was by now writing and publishing his own books, and Crowley disliked them intensely. 
Another major source of attention was over Crowley's stock of books, which he had arranged to be sent over from England. Uckard arranged and paid for their storage. He was authorised by Crowley to sell these books, keeping a proportion of the money for himself and forwarding the rest to Crowley. Well, Crowley received little in the way of money, and he came to suspect that Uckard was defrauding him. Uh, he set up a committee with three handpicked members to investigate the matter. Perhaps not surprisingly, the committee found in Crowley's favour an illegal document, the release, was drawn up by legal representatives on both sides to settle and then to sever financial relations between the two men. And this document was executed on the 4th of June, 1926. As we've seen earlier, for some years, Ockard had focused his work in the Universal Brotherhood. <clears throat> and that work continued and indeed intensified throughout the period of deteriorating relations with Crowley and including this rather long running dispute over the books. Shortly before the, the final legal document, the release was executed, Arkad received a word, money owed. <clears throat> I've not come across any accounts by Arkad of how this word was received, nor what he thought that it signified. Many years later, in his correspondence of 1948 with Gerald York, he speculated that this word money owed may have been the word which Crowley had tried and failed to receive in connection with his attainment to the grade of Magus. Writing to York in 1948, Uckert quoted from a letter which Crowley had written to him in July 1916 about the problems he was having, waiting to receive his word as Magus. I'm still in profundis. I wrote an essay on God as a sadist two days ago, and yesterday went through a big magical ceremony, but nothing seems to revive me. I can't learn to wait for the word properly. I believe if I could only do that for 10 minutes, the word would come. And then, continuing his letter to York in 1948, he went on, about 10 years later, on May the 8th, 1926, at 6.19pm in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, in the presence of a living witness to whom it was immediately communicated, the word was obtained by one which Liber Legis prophesied should obtain the key of it all. This word, when comprehended rightly, clearly shows this for it contains many formulae and special virtues. After this, Arkad's initiations continued in 1932 with what he referred to as the Silver Star initiations and to mark which he designed a particularly lovely letterhead that he, he used henceforth and indeed most of his letters to York actually are on this letterhead. 
that's got a sort of furry appearance because um, it had to be scanned from letter, the paper of which has got a rough texture. And um, so that's how it came out. <clears throat> he wrote to Crowley that year in rather humorous terms, um, letting him know about the initiations, uh, firstly the reception of Monio and secondly the Silver Star initiations. Um, but he tended to have very, very waspish humour and Crowley really didn't appreciate it, uh, replied tersely, and that was that. Well, a number of years passed. And the silence between the two men was next broken by Crowley in 1936. He was working on the equinox of the gods and he wished to write about Akkad's discovery in 1918 of Al as the key to the book of the law. Um, these insights which Akkad had recorded in Library 31 to Crowley, that Crowley was very enthusiastic about. For a while, this correspondence in 1936 between the two men was respectful and positive. Crowley stating that he thought that Uckert's role in plumbing the depths of the Book of Law had a lot further to go. He also acknowledged Uckert's role in preparing for the Ian of Truth and Justice. Take, for instance, this passage from a letter that Crowley wrote in July 1936. Your preparations for the Ian of Justice seem to me personal to yourself, incidents in the course of your initiation, and I have no doubt that they will flower at the fall of the great equinox. But I think that your position in respect to the Ian of Horus is to be considered of supreme importance at this juncture. I do, I do not at all think that your work in respect of the Book of Law has passed beyond its beginning. I regard the curious experience through which you have passed as a necessary, necessary training for your full assumption of your office. Well, this was the high point. And I think it actually says quite a lot, but uh, the, shortly afterwards, the correspondence descended into mutual suspicion and acrimony, and Crowley dredged up yet again his conviction, his suspicion that Uckert had stolen his books and was waiting for his Crowley's death before bringing, bringing them out to sell at a vast profit. Anyway, it went from bad to worse, and the correspondence ended with Crowley issuing a notice of the expulsion of Uckert from the OTO. In 1936, whilst all this was going on, in May 1936 to be precise, Arkad established a lodge, Emmanuel Lodge, for the purpose of the ritual transmission of Manio. It was to be concentrated in three initiatory degrees. Interestingly, he established the lodge not within the Universal Brotherhood, but using a charter he had received from Heinrich Tranker, the German OTO head, 
1924 for the establishment of a branch of Pan Sophia in America. <coughs> well, Lockhart being Lockhart, he made it into a letterhead that he used. Um, he he used for the purpose of uh, communication between various members of the lodge, uh, and also used um, on note paper to York when he told him about this lodge. And that's it. As you can see, it's a very, very beautiful thing. Um, authorised by Letters Patent in 1924, that refers to the charter that I mentioned a minute or two ago from Heinrich Tranko. The interesting thing is that Uckard hadn't appears not to have done anything with his charter up until this point. So one wonders exactly why he chose to activate it now. Although Akkad did attempt uh, contact a couple of times before Crowley's death, the two men actually had no further contact um, apart from a very indirect letter from Akkad to Crowley via his friend Handy. But Crowley was very dismissive of this and uh, that came to no direct contact between them. After Crowley's death in December 1947, his friend, a longtime supporter, and the one-time disciple in the AA, Gerald York, was ordering Crowley's papers. Crowley had directed in his will that his papers be sent over to his uh, nominated successor in the OTO and in the AA, Carl Goma. And York was the person gathering them together. He noticed that amongst these papers, there wasn't a copy of Liber 31, um, Akkad's discovery of the importance of vow to the Book of the Law, and he thought it should be. So he wrote to Akkad asking for a copy. Um, Akkad actually had it typed up again and sent him a copy, but more to the point, it sparked off a correspondence between the two men. Uh, that was that went on throughout 1948 and 1949. I was very copious and had an absolutely riveting amount of detail um, about the relationships of both men to Crowley. Um, Akkad's letters in particular are an absolute mine of information. And then suddenly, in early April 1948, Akkad announced that he had detected the incoming of the Ian of Truth and Justice. This was something that subsequently was discussed at great length in the correspondence between Akkad and York. York made it plain that he'd never been happy with what he saw as the harshness, the force and fire of Horace, and was only too happy at the idea that there might be something that would ameliorate this, this harshness, this what he saw as this unnecessary cruelty of the force and fire of Horace. However, 
He could not believe that the Ian of Horace had ended after a mere 44 years from 1904. Uckard maintained that the incoming of the Ian of Truth and Justice did not mean that the Ian of Horace had been cut short, but that on the contrary, the Ian of Horace was continued in the Ian of Truth and Justice. Interestingly, support for this view can be found in Crowley's work. For instance, the new comment, uh, which I read out earlier, um, I'll read out the relevant passage again because uh, I can't expect you to have committed all my words to um, memory, doubtlessly profound though they are. Um, so Crowley says, apropos this, note the close connection between Leo and Libra in the tarot. The numbers eight and 11, that's um, adjustment and lust, being interchanged with 11 and eight. There is no violent antithesis as that between Osiris and Horus. Strength will prepare the reign of justice. We should begin already, as I deem, to regard this justice as the ideal, whose way we should make ready by virtue of our force and fire. So, to my mind, um, what this shows, what this shows is that this wasn't really very much out of line with what Crowley himself thought. Then, in the summer of 1948, York became aware that Uckard had recently come across a collection of diaries, notebooks and typescripts that Crowley had left with Uckard when leaving America for Chifaloo. Seems uh, Uckard had just put them up in his attic and forgotten about them. Being a collector, York was anxious to get his hands on these documents, or at least on copies of them. Uckard, though, was hesitant. York pushed a little too hard, and as a result, relations between Uckard and he cooled significantly as did the, the frequency of writing. This here, this slide shows Arkad in middle age, as he would have been at the time of the correspondence with York. His face wasn't really that blurry, it's just a very uh, low resolution photograph. Um, and this is a photograph of Gerald York on holiday in the late 1940s in the north of England, in the Lake District. And he's with his eldest son, Michael, sorry, John, Michael, Michael's me. And um, so this is how York would have been at the time of the correspondence of 1948, 1949. This here um, is a letterhead, another letterhead that Uckard had made up in March 1943, when he had uh, an important insight into the word manifestation. Um, and I'll come on to that in a minute. 
Ucker died in February 1950. His work on the end of March was not really continued by his successors in the Universal Brotherhood. I don't think they really understood Ucker's work, but they sensed that it was important and should be preserved in case the time came when it could be understood. This is conveyed in the letter of an unknown correspondent to John Cowell, Ucker's successor. As I see it, the thing to do is to obtain the other copy of Libel 31 from Molina. Molina was uh, Ucker's wife in the evening. And when I return all the papers you have sent me without retyping them, they should be put together in our archives. I've arrived at this opinion by a close study of the Ucker York letters and as already suggested, you can only see the whole picture by a light, stu a light study of them. <clears throat> Certainly the letters should form part of the record and be included in the archives also. Then the entire work will be preserved for some future person providentially raised up and qualified to deal with it. There is an interesting parallel, I think, with the work of Jack Parsons. Like Akkad, he saw a need for an ameliorating feminine influence to assuage the harshness of the force and fire of Horace and he expressed this in terms of tetragrammaton, yod hey vav hey. He conceived of this force as Babylon, and he wrote about this in an untitled essay as yet unpublished, the transcript of which survives in the Gerald York collection at the Warburg in London. He says, the Ian of Horace is of the nature of the child. To perceive this, we must conceive of the nature of the child without the veil of sentimentality, beyond good and evil, perfectly gentle, perfectly ruthless, containing all the possibilities within the limits of heredity and highly susceptible to training and environment. But the nature of Horace is also the nature of force, blind, terrible, unlimited force. That is why the West stands in imminent danger of annihilation that is why the West also stands in the possibility of the most rapid and tremendous evolution that the world has ever known. The balance must be love and understanding or else all else fails. Now we have said enough for this place. Then let the student read and meditate upon the ritual of Horace, constructing the total nature of Horace out of the polyphony of the component concepts. <coughs> and if he dare, let him invoke Horace and partake of the power and energy that is his right under the new eon. And let him also consider the love whereby Horace may be fulfilled and dignified. And meditating on this, let him prevision and invoke that which is to come. And he expands on this in the paragraph a bit later on. Uh, this is where he likens it to yod heh vav -Heh. Among the ancient Hebrews, the name of God was yod heh vav -Heh. This is perhaps the most magnificent formula ever devised 
symbolizing at once the whole process of nature and the highest accounts of magic. Yod symbolizes God as the primal father, the solar phallic created will or fire. Hey symbolizes God as the mother, the feminine generative principle, the passive will or water. Vav symbolizes God as the son, the male child of the father and of the mother, the will to go, air. Hey final symbolizes God as the daughter, Babylon, she who is to come, earth, the virgin who unites with the father, stimulates him to reactivity and begins a generative process all over again. The cycle is closed, the process is eternal and contains within itself the seeds of all possibility. Well, skipping ahead uh, a good few years, in the early 1970s, a woman in America, Margaret Ingalls, received a text which purported to be from the Ian of Mars, which in this text was characterized as some 2000 years hence. This text was live in Penne Prenumbra, the book of the foreshadowing of the feather. Margaret Ingalls was impressed to send a copy of this to Kenneth Grant, whose third book, Cults of the Shadow, was being printed at the time. In late 1950, at York's request, Grant had made typed copies of the letters between York and Ucker. Although he had been broadly skeptical of the incoming of the Ian of Mart, as outlined by Ucker, and indeed he said as much in the chapter on Ucker and Cults of the Shadow, <coughs> it is clear from the early correspondence with Margaret Ingalls that he was beginning to revise his opinion before she wrote to him. Grant made references to her work in his next book, Nightside of Eden. However, it is his book after that, Outside the Circles of Time, which makes a much more detailed study of the received texts and other documents which, which Margaret Ingalls generated subsequently. Before receiving the text of Liber Penne for a number, Margaret Engels had not come across the Yucca York correspondence, and there are few points of similarity between what she received and Yucca's work. However, the sense emerges of the Ian's of Horace and Mark comprising the double current, which fits quite well with Yucca's contention to York in 1948 that the Ian of Mark was the fulfillment and continuation of the Ian of Horace. Grant made a link between Uckard's work and his earlier participation in 1918 of the Amal in the Amalantra working. The egg was the predominant feature of many of the sessions which comprised the Amalantra working. And the egg entered into Uckard's work overtly in a very curious fashion. In March 1948, it struck Uckard that there was something significant about the word manifestation. This word occurs in the first and last chapters, first and last verses of the Nuit chapter of the Book of the Law. He became convinced that this was the secret word of Nuit referred to elsewhere in that chapter. 
Now, manifestation, when transliterated into Hebrew characters, enumerates as 257. Taking the word manio, which is clearly a foreshadowing of the word manifestation, we get manio equaling 107. The remaining letters, we get 150. Now, 107, he linked via gematria to Beitzer, Ed. 150, he linked to QN, Ness. Thus, manifestation, he was able to parallel in this way with the egg and ness, and more succinctly as the egg within the ness. Akkad didn't have much to say about the nature of the Ian of Marx, about what it might mean and so forth. He was, I think, simply recording the birth of a new eon and the nature of it will become apparent as it unfolds. Thus, I can't tell you here tonight what it all means. There is a point of view that the eons are not spans of time, but states of awareness. In my own experience, I've come to identify the Ian of Marx with the clarity of Advaita Vedanta. For me, the word Thelema indicates not a personal true will, which is buried within us each, waiting to be discovered, but rather a cosmic superpersonal will, the will of God, the will of the cosmos. I use Akkad's word of 1926, Manio, in my magical work and find it very fertile and full of potential. I mentioned a little bit earlier that Akkad's colleagues in the Universal Brotherhood uh, saw the need to preserve the Akkad's work, and in particular the correspondence with Gerald York, for some future, for future people to arise who might understand it. Um, in fact, this isn't in terms of a person, a big beast, a successor to Crowley, to Akkad, um, and various people in between, like Grant. Um, I think actually that anyone who chooses to work with this material is thereby it is thereby a successor succeeding um, to Akkad. Anybody who's influenced by his work who tries to tries tries to plumb the depths. I'd like to about about a year before the publication of the incoming of the Ian of Mark, I was going through for the umpteenth time, you just can't imagine how much bloody proofreading I did of that book. And I came to an account, um, this account of Akkad, whereby he was talking about the discovery of manifestation, the discovery of egg and ness, and suddenly something struck me forcibly that hadn't struck me before. Um, I meet with some colleagues in the lodge, well, uh, once every few weeks. Well, I mean, obviously we're meeting via Zoom present. Anyway, basically it's uh, a lodge of work on LAM, the Laman Lodge, uh, within Auditophonis. And our current method of working actually takes elements from a particular scene of the Amalantra working. Um, 
and the the locale, the location for this working is um, there is a ring of mountain ranges and within this there's a lake. Within the lake is an island and this island, uh, this island is actually, contains actually the woodland glade from the Amalantra working. Um, and it's uh, and it it runs up into woodland, etc. And we work in the imagination, but all of a sudden, as I say, I was struck by the fact that, unbeknownst to us, for all this time, we've actually somehow been influenced by by Eckhart's work, by this particular realization of. Okay. Uh, similarly, I've been very struck by the word of 1926, Manio. Um, I use that, I vibrate it, I, I use it in this particular lunar working that I've been occupied on now for the best part of the year. And I have to say that I find it bloody good. Um, I rather love it. Um, I would even go as so far as to say that it is this word, Manio, which is at root of Akkad's work. It is this word manio that later um, came into full of view as manifestation and that actually triggered um, the incoming of the Ian of Mart in 1948. I believe that the work that Akkad did, vibrating this word ritually in 1936 in Emmanuel Lodge, I think that has carried on vibrating and it is this that has led to the upsurge of interest in Akkad that I've noticed over the last few years. Well, I'd like to bring this, I'd like to bring this to a close by reading out one of Akkad's hymns in his 31 hymns to the star goddess. This one is actually hymn number 30, Justice. I am a fool, O beloved, and therefore am I one or naught, as the fancy takes me. Now I am come to justice, so that I may be all or naught, according to the direction of vision. No breath may stir the feather of truth. Therefore is justice alone in L. Yet the ox goad is motion and the breath matter if it be called the ox, which is also A. How foolish are these thoughts, which are but as the sword in the hand of justice. They are as unbalanced as the scales that stir not, being fixed in the grasp of the figure of law above the courthouse of the great city. But thou hast said, love is the law, love under will. And love is the will to change, and change is the will to love. <clears throat> Even in the stern outline of the scales of justice, do I perceive the instrument of love. And in the life sentence, the mystery of imprisonment in thy being, O oh, beloved.
Thank you. That's the end. Um, Thank wow, you, Michael Staley. That was absolutely fabulous. I think uh, we're clapping here for everybody that listened to the presentation. That brings some uh, oh, fresh, uh, fresh new air and everything. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And it's open up for questions. We got a few minutes here before uh, we get on to our next speaker, who I've introduced three times, Richard Kaczynski. Uh, so we got a few minutes if somebody has some questions. <laughs> Any questions? Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, I don't think Michael met Alcott. No, he's, he, but he, Michael's like not too much older than me. He never met. He, he met. Knew, he, he knew Kenneth Grant. He worked with Kenneth Grant, correct? Yes, I did. How yes, I did. Uh, I knew Kenneth from the mid nineteen seventies. Do you know becoming how a member? Do you know how much of the content? Sorry? of do you, I'm wondering if you know how much of the content of the tunnels of set in the night side of Eden were taken from Akkad or how much were uh, Grant's original work? Um, to be honest, it's Grant's original work. Um, what, with Night Side of Eden, it's divided into two parts. It's the second part, which is the tunnels of set. The first part is um, a number of um, a, a number of chapters on various topics, and it's amongst those chapters that um, that Ander Hadner, Margaret Ingalls, Nima is first introduced. But no, um, I get the impression <clears throat> get the impression that the work on the tunnels of set really is something that he developed um, from the Isis Lodge. Yeah, I always thought it, always thought it was his original work, but then some people were. Proposing other ideas, but it is his original work. The no, set. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think that. I don't think that the Akkad ever did that sort of work, really. No. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I noticed okay. like the, the modern uh, Universal Brotherhood. You they have a website, uh, the Great Circle, and it's like Steiner's mentioned and other people that were in their past were mentioned. But it's like Akkad's completely missing from the, the history that they offer. And I, I was wondering if you thought that there was any reason why that. Yes, I've heard that. You, do you think there's. Um, a... Yeah, I do really. I mean, I, well, you see, I think, I mean, to be honest, uh, I kind of rather have the impression that the Universal Brotherhood tended to be organized in cells with different kind of streams and <clears throat> I think it was it was a very specific stream um, that Akka joined uh, of which he became the head in the late 20s early 30s and of which he himself was succeeded by his student John Cowell so um, it kind of sounds to me as if this revived Universal Brotherhood comes from another stream that, that I could never encountered. Hmm. Well, you know, that's my theory anyway. Hmm. Do you know anything about his relationship with the avant-garde artist, Harry Smith? No, I don't actually. Um, basically, uh, I co-edited and co-commented and co-footnoted 
uh, the incoming of the end of Mark with uh, a friend of mine, Michael Barham, a collector. And he actually knows much more about this relationship with, um, with Harry Clark. And he commented on it in, um, in the introduction to, um, to the book, but I myself don't know very much about that, I'm afraid. Okay. Oh, well, sorry. Is it Harry Clark or Harry Smith? I think it's Harry Smith. Yeah, Harry Smith. Harry Smith, I think. I thought maybe I'd messed up. I know it's Harry Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, interesting. Well, I guess, <laughs> I guess we should probably start switching Richard over to the, uh, can you switch him over to have control of the thing? And our next speaker, uh, um, third time's the charm. Mm -hmm. I've introduced him a few times already, is the great Richard Kaczynski, probably uh, the foremost uh, historian on Crowley and matters involving the OTO and Crowley-related stuff. His uh, biography, Perdurabo, The Life, Life of Aleister Crowley, is a must-read for anybody that wants to really understand Aleister Crowley. And his book, The Forgotten Templars, fills in so many holes uh, uh, regarding the origins of the Knight Templar. It as well is an important uh, volume and Richard is to be respected by one and all. And here he is at the final hour and uh, Richard Kaczynski, uh, take it away. Well, thank you so much. First, let me ask, are you able to hear me okay? Is my volume level all right? Yeah, I can hear you okay. Super. Michael, so, so, so glad to hear from you. Uh, sorry we couldn't be doing this in person. Um, and you're certainly a tough act to follow. There's a number <laughs> of things in your talk that uh, made me sit up and take notice. I may uh, drop you a line uh, <laughs> later this week about it. Okay. But um, yes, uh, thank you to, to Chris and Soma Institute for inviting me to address all of you today and thank all of you for taking time out of your day to tune in. Um, as as uh, Chris had said, I'm here to talk about the life of Aleister Crowley as part of a celebration of, of his birthday today. Um, and what I will do with my with my talk here today is I will start with a little bit of a presentation just to kind of give a overview of very briefly of Crowley's life and then what we'll be able to do is go into more detail on various aspects of his life. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.com co.uk that's hermetic science enterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know i've uh, talked with the publisher lenny on the podcast before including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the patreon and uh seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of scott's discovery of witchcraft which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies 
uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.